It's kind of like a sexy, painful hug is the best way I can explain being in it. This conversation is about lots of different things and a few of them I want to flag up for you before we go in. So it touches quite a lot on eating disorders, uh, disordered eating and on mental health issues including suicidal ideation or suicidal thoughts and anxiety and depression. Although I should make it clear that there aren't any descriptions of suicide attempts or anything like that. It touches on various different ways that society oppresses people, including bullying and various kinds of discrimination. And a lot of the conversation is about sex, sexuality, kink, BDSM, gender, those kind of things. So I think it's a really great conversation. It was a lot of fun to have and a lot of fun to listen back to. But I just want to flag those things up for people who may want that information so that they can make informed choices when going in. And I call it killing the ants. I grew up in North America, right? I grew up in Canada. And like, if one ant comes into your home and gets the chance to go back to the colony, you'll end up with like an infestation. So when the first ant comes in, you have to kill it. And it's the same for me with mental health stuff of like one shows up and you just have to be like, nope, squish that. That's crazy. Once it starts, it can really snowball or at least like recognize it and start to problem solve. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Make me better I want to get better 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 acquainted with you Today we're getting better acquainted with Emily. Hello Emily. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> it's going good. Uh, this is the second conversation I've recorded today so I, cool. I feel like... Um, uh, you know, like I've I've been talking a lot, and then it's funny because mostly, like my life, and particularly because my partner's away at the moment, uh, my life has been editing and not speaking to any other humans. So, so it's, it's like, like exciting. Over, yeah, to it's get. like an overload after a kind of like no, nothing uh, in terms of social communication. Yeah. Um, but that's good, and I feel like we're both probably I think oversharers. So um, I think that's probably going to make for a, a fun conversation. Um, I'm, I'm really yeah. I'm, I mean, kind of an open book. I don't really want to say it. like oversharing. Actually, that 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 sort of implies a kind of internalized negativity that yeah. I have around my own ability to express. <laughs> yeah, myself. Yeah, I was going to say that kind of so, that kind of implies like like pushing information right. onto people. No, right, right. That's want, true. So. That's true. But we're both people who are comfortable talking about ourselves yeah. and anything that yeah. comes up. That's always exciting for me to go <laughs> in. I come from a family with like lots of complicated boundary stuff and so I never know quite how to deal with boundaries. And okay. So I like it when there's other people who are quite open. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, that, that, that like, sort of saves things. Takes the stress things. out of it. Yeah, right. There's, there's less ways to offend people who are open, <laughs> I find. But that's a personal perspective. But anyway, the first question that I ask everybody mm-hmm. is how do you know me? Right, so I know you from stand-up tragedy and this is when it becomes very obvious that timelines of things in my head don't necessarily correlate with dates or years i think that's probably around 2014 that i met you um because yeah it was at the edinburgh fringe and i was doing like i think i told stories at, at stand-up tragedy that's right i think that's I how think i initially did, yeah, met you I and then you did some spoken wordy sort yes. of stuff maybe with a bit of music as yeah. well oh yeah i think i did a poem and a, and a song because they're, they're about they're, they're both about my dad so right that's right yeah and then i think from there there was another stand-up tragedy thing i did and then in london sort of, yeah. yeah and then I ended up for that one. Yeah. connected vaguely through facebook for that 
from, right. from that stuff. Right. So we hardly know each other, but we've met a few times. Exactly. Uh, yeah. We kind of know what each other do a bit as well. Yeah. We've kind of seen each other in those performance contexts. Yeah. But at the same time, particularly with the way that the algorithms are online, it's actually harder to see what yes. people are doing. Unless you're kind of keep specifically keeping an eye on it. Yeah, yeah. Unless Facebook's decided <clears throat> that that's a person that, that they're going to tell yeah. you about. Or you have things in common with in exactly. specific ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So, like, so I guess it's going to be interesting to find out a little bit more about each other today <laughs> although I've got a nice list not everybody gives me a list of things that they might want to talk about I always like it when they do because I'm like great I've, I've kind You've of got, got like fodder got, to start yeah, with I don't yeah to, uh, and also like yeah I don't have to panic in the middle and go oh what, what's, oh God, what, what topics should I talk about yeah so that's how we know each other mm-hmm. and the second question that I ask everybody is what do you do now at the moment I have various things that I do I I run two fetish events I run what people call a play party and I run a munch which is basically like a meet up but everyone there's kinky I sing in a band um so my band is called the fascinators and we're kind of like a strange draggy metally thing um yeah so that's one of the things I do we've been playing together for about two and a half years and at the moment we're in flux because our drummer that has been with us for about the last year is about to start a masters so has left the band and so we're now looking for a new drummer which is complicated because we have a really wide range of influences so it's like we need a drummer who has metal chops but also is like sure this random bit in the middle of a roughly grindcore song that sounds a bit like an operetta great let's go with that like it's a strange mix of stuff Um, yeah I mean I enjoy it obviously (laughs) Um, and and in a lot of ways like I think I think people either are really really into what we do or don't get it and don't like it because it's kind of like we joke around and we call ourselves like a drag metal band but also like a lot of our influences are like really kind of old school like classic metal I guess like kind of like Metallica and, and Black Sabbath and then I'm a lot more heavily like punk influenced and the guitarists in my band are a lot more like prog metal and prog rock influenced. Right. So like early on, um, Gareth, the the first guitarist in my band, we now have two, he would like bring me these like nine, eight, nine minute epic songs that he'd kind of created and I would kind of take them and be like, I'm going to kill your baby and like chop it up and, <laughs> and stick it back together in a different order with like more structure because I, I write the majority of the, the lyrics and melody. But if I write things on my own, they end up being like two and a half, three minutes long. So we kind of level out at about like four or five minutes. Right. So we kind of like right. balance each other in a lot of ways. Cool. But yeah, so I guess those are the two main things I do. I do a lot of things. I get excited about new things very easily and I, I kind of have a very all or nothing personality. So if I discover something that I like, I kind of like throw myself into it headlong and then kind of have to deal with the fallout from that. Yeah. Sometimes I, I go too far and like drop other stuff in my life. So it's a, it's a balance. <laughs> right. It, yeah, no, it is a balance. And I, I kind of relate to that to a certain degree of like being all or nothing and like jumping in completely mm. to things. One thing that listeners won't be able to appreciate because they're listening rather than <laughs> here in the room is you've got dyed green hair yeah. and eyebrows. Yes, eyebrows I dyed my eyebrows. Green. Just super, that is super cool. Like, I, I like that. It's, yeah. it's like a subtle thing as well. Like it's a bit like, like I've got purple glasses and it takes people a yeah. little bit of time to notice that it depends adults there. don't cotton onto it very quickly but kids right. like super fast right so so um also just just so anyone listening knows green and pink are my favorite color so literally everything that everything. is on my body currently is either green pink or black right and and like i only own clothing that is green 
and pink or black and gray like I only own neutral colors or green and pink and that kind of started as I had a conversation with a friend of mine about a podcast they listened to talking about decision making and basically how people who tend to make a lot of decisions cut down on unnecessary decisions like Steve Jobs wearing the same thing every day and stuff like that and I in some ways am quite like chilled out and level-headed but also in specific ways especially around decision making I can get a lot of anxiety so like going shopping was really stressful like shopping for clothes and stuff so I decided to do an experiment and basically like was like I'm only like I really like green I really like pink I'm only gonna look at things that are those colors and suddenly going shopping was like the least stressful thing because basically unless it's a natural fiber I can dye or it's green pink black or gray I just don't look at it um (laughs) And it takes, like, if you're looking at, like, an enormous shop that's, like, seven floors and, uh, you right. know, like, it, it suddenly it's like you have, like, a, maybe a sixteenth of their stock to look at instead. Plus it means everything always matches. Right. Um, and, like, it's funny because now friends of mine and people who've known me for a while just associate me with that. Right. And if they see things that are green and pink in combination, they'll, like, send me pictures of it to okay. be, like... Look, I think you would appreciate it. Well, that's always useful as well. Um, like, I'm into purple, I guess. And I'm not quite as into, like, I should be as into purple as, <laughs> as it sounds like it solves a lot of problems that I do have. Uh, although the, the last few years I haven't had enough money to, to buy clothes. So yeah. I'm basically just ending up in, like, everything's fraying. But, yeah, yeah. Which I guess is my style now. Um, <laughs> it's become a choice. It's yeah, like exactly. It's, it's my aesthetic. But, like, purple, like, being into purple means that people, yeah, buy you clothes. Yeah, when they buy totally. you clothes, they buy you purple clothes and you like them. Yeah. And that's the perfect. I use uh, to, um, I feel I feel like everyone has at least one relative who, no matter how hard they try, just always buys them terrible, terrible gifts. And I had one yes. aunt who would do that quite regularly and, and buy me things that, like, I'm sure she was really trying, but were just not my thing at all. Would be like, here's loads of, like, blue eye makeup and really over-the-top sparkly girly jewellery. And it's right. just it's, it's not really my thing. Um, like, I kind of have this, like, weird sort of femme, grungy punk thing going on. Right. Like, girly in the traditional sense is right. not my style um and then as soon as i started doing the green and pink thing like everything she's bought me has been incredible because right. it's like it fits it works it's well, totally a thing that i'd go with well when you're like playing or like queering or like whatever we want to say about gender when you're like not conforming to gender yeah. stereotypes like that's when relatives really have a problem working yeah, out what to sure. do i mean that's definitely how i feel about purple as a color that definitely means that people can kind of like they can buy that for me without like feeling like they're helping me to like deconstruct masculinity yeah, yeah, yeah. they are yeah but, they, they but it's don't not necessarily a conscious are. decision yeah, absolutely right, right. yeah <laughs> um yeah it's kind of an interesting one also because i'm very so, so sometimes i forget that i have i have family on my social media feeds um yeah. which is interesting because like my little two of my younger cousins so they're 13 and 16 they follow me on instagram um and one of the things that i i, I guess one of the things that i do is i do shibari rope so it's like originally was a japanese style of of bondage that has come out of Japan with Japanese teachers teaching people in the West and then it's kind of been slightly westernized in certain ways because about 15 years ago people in the West were like super super worried about particular physical risks so like there is a some a slight risk with it of of nerve damage in the arms and stuff so like yeah. in the West people were like super hot on making sure that that wasn't an issue and like adjusting Japanese ties to work better for Western bodies and stuff it's kind of been this interesting knowledge share back and forth around right. this stuff okay. it's a thing that I do you can do like cool rope suspensions and it's kind of like it's it's kind of like a sexy painful hug is the best way I can explain being in it right. um 
but like I do I do rope suspensions and I take pictures of my rope suspensions and edit the photos and then put them on my Instagram and then feel really awkward when my 13 year old cousin likes them and I'm like right. oh right yeah I forgot that was the case I mean awkward um, but you know I always think there's like a because I have a similar problem sometimes mm. like I share controversial or like uh, sexual material and then I remember that yeah I've got young members of my family who might, yeah. who might follow some of that but I think it's like 50 50 like it's good and bad right because yeah. you're, you're also saying this is a possibility yeah well to people who might not have thought i that kind of take solace in the idea that like if worse comes to worse they know they have someone that's close to them that they're familiar with that if they want to ask questions about this they can yeah. um that's so important which is is like uh, that, that i'm like okay that's cool at least like yeah. they know i'm queer they know i'm i'm kinky i don't think i'm particularly out there it's particularly on my instagram about being non-monogamous but like um it that like there's an awareness of it right and that's definitely an interesting one like i don't know if my <clears throat> nieces and nephews know that i'm non-monogamous mm. um and they but they might i mean it's out there it's yeah. it's available but i don't think certainly my younger uh family members the youngest ones know uh, and so that's an, yeah, that's also an interesting thing yeah. to, to grapple <clears throat> with. And in fairness, I think it's more challenging to represent non-monogamy on your social media presence unless you're like really particularly overt yeah. and kind of performative in your yeah, relationships in terms of like sharing stuff, yeah. which I don't really Why do. Why would it come up? That's um, the thing. It's like it doesn't come up that you're monogamous either. Yeah, it's like, like a, no one's saying I, <clears throat> I am. An, a, a, although again, if you're particularly performative in your monogamy, yeah, exactly. then everyone knows yeah, that exactly. you're married. Whereas like at the <laughs> moment, I have I have two romantic partners and an ongoing DS. Uh, so DS is, stands for Dom Sub for anyone who doesn't know. It's an ongoing relationship. It's not romantic, but it is significant, which is also a difficult thing to explain to anyone who right. isn't necessarily clued up on that stuff. Right. So ultimately I have like three significant relationships, but I don't post anything about any of them on social right. media, really, because it's just not really my style. Well, and non-monogamy is so diverse in the way that different mm. people practice it. Like, Absolutely. Like I... I, me and my partner opened up our relationship like after 11 years of being monogamous yeah and that's a very different thing from being kind that, of in yeah. relationship anarchy or like poly or yeah. any of those kind of things and that can be a serious process right like, there's there's so so I, I i have been in relationships i was so my my experience with the non-monogamy is kind of unique so i'm i'm turning 26 at the end of june i've been non-monogamous for like Nearly 11 years. Wow. Um, and the reason is the first person that I dated, she was she was my first girlfriend. And the first date that she went on, at the end of it, she gave me a copy of a book called The Ethical Slut. Which, the, yeah, ex- which, which a lot of, of non-monogamous of, people hold up as some kind of like Bible of non-monogamy. But there's also some problematic elements to it. Oh, too. yeah, there is. And also like it's very like clear. Yeah, it's very clear <laughs> that it was written by people who had their heyday. Like they, they discovered non-monogamy in in like the 70s and right. like the height of the hippie era. Right, like right, it's, right. it's very kind of idealistic, like love is intimate, infinite kind of non-monogamy. And the appeal of non-monogamy to me is just like, it made sense to me. Right. So like I read The Ethical Slut and a lot of the stuff that stuck out to me was like culturally, especially in the West, there's this very recent idea that your romantic partner is the person that you should get all of Everything your needs met from, by. Yeah. Um, like every single one. And also to me, that just seems like an enormous amount of pressure. I also discovered this book about a year and a half after my parents uh, split up, which right. I think was probably a factor. Mm, right. Because I had basically seen how if it hadn't been culturally inappropriate for them to get stuff from other relationships, mm-hmm. they would have had better support networks. Right. And I think things could have been worked out better. Right. I mean, that was part of the reason when we 
we opened up our relationship that was part of it it was like we're both the children of divorces and yeah. uh we've seen how these things can go and yeah. actually we we wanted to stay together yeah so we opened up our relationship because yeah. that's the best way in our opinion for us yeah exactly to do that, you know? um and it's definitely massively personal but yeah, yeah. So, so this girl she was uh two or three years older than me i think so i was 15 she was like 17 or 18 right um and she basically gave me a copy of the ethical slot and was like look this is how i operate um give it a read see what you think if you're on board then like I think are really cool, like, and we can, like, date or whatever. So you've basically been um, non-monogamous all of your... Oh, all my adult life. So adult basically life, I... Yeah, but um, that was a challenge in and of itself. So my mum is an assertiveness trainer. So there are certain concepts that I've grown up with in terms of, like, interpersonal relation and communication and, like, boundaries and stuff that a lot of people just never learn. So, like, the idea that everyone has a right to ask for anything they need or want but you also have a right to say no to anything. Right. So like I've always had a very kind of clear sense of self and like where I end and other people begin, which if you're like 16 and 17 entering relationships with people who are like maybe like two to four years older than you and they don't have that is hugely frustrating because it means I'm like trying to have a like serious conversation with them about like, let's talk about like our needs in this relationship and let's talk about like how we make sure everyone's looked after and like how we have honest discourse about what else is going on and who else we're seeing and like talking to an average 19 or 20 year old about that and they're just like they they, they just don't have the skills right right um so it's been a process I mean, when you're saying 15 and like, no, like i was like whoa like, like i was like impressed by the person who gave you the book as yeah well totally, as, like, totally. The, both very young people who have come to pretty interesting <clears throat> conclusions yeah. and good ones in my and view. i think it, as far as i remember it's also a thing of like she was given that book by someone who was older than her right. that she was seeing it past that. So so it's kind of the, right. the, the knowledge exchange is interesting. Yeah. Um, but so that was kind of the initial thing. And then there were two people that I dated who asked for the relationship to be closed at one point. And one of them that was very short lived. And I realized very swiftly that that wasn't a thing that I wanted. And then with the other partner that, that happened with, we were together for two years. And basically for the first year, we were pretty much monogamous because a lot of very stressful things happened in our lives very early on into seeing each other. Right. So I think when that happens in relationships, it's very easy to like because of the mutual support that you get be like okay well this is really solid and so we close the relationship for a while which to me meant for a while like until we get to a point where we renegotiate and to him i i think meant that that was kind of that um right. and and he he'd never been with someone who was non-monogamous before he hadn't considered it before and so because of that like i think we had a very different perception so about a year later when i was like so this monogamy thing can we like change that up again can we like renegotiate that please <laughs> it was an interesting process and right. also like there were various things in terms of like his anxieties around it and also my frustration because i'm uh, i will fully admit to the fact that when i've decided i want some to do something or i want something to be a certain way i can be enormously impatient if it doesn't adhere to my schedule or how fast i think that thing should go and can be very rigid in that so I got very frustrated and I think he had a huge level of anxiety and so that relationship ended for various reasons. But the process of opening a closed relationship was, for me, far more difficult as someone who's done non-monogamy for all my adult life, was way more difficult than starting non-monogamous relationships with that as the basis and the understanding. Right, which is interesting because I would, I mean, although of course it's not a monolithic thing and there's so many different 
ways of, of, of doing non-monogamy, I'd say probably a norm, quite a common thing anyway, is the other way around. Right? Yeah. Is, the, is, is opening it up after a couple of years at least, if not yeah. longer, like with me and my partner. So that's it's interesting that you, for you, it's the other way around yeah. is more difficult. Right? Well, and I think one factor to that is like the my, my two current romantic partners. So, so one of them I've been with for two and a half years. In August, it'll be three years. He was seeing two other people when me and him met. I was seeing two other people when me and him met. That was just before the, the relationship I was talking about stopped. And so, like, it was just because we were both seeing other people, there was never an expectation that there would ever be an agreement of monogamy, right? Right. Um, and, like, the relationships he was in at the time broke down in their various ways, and me and him got a lot closer. And then the other romantic partner I have, we've been seeing each other for, like, coming up to a year. And he had just, like, literally about a week before we first like hung out I guess had broken up with a partner they had unhealthy non-monogamy right there was a lot of like difficulties and a lot of on both sides I think like frustration I think on her part there was some like emotional manipulation going on and 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 so like basically he was like super clear about what he wanted and very much into like super upfront open communication basically like these are my needs state them and sort it out kind of thing because of his frustration with that situation and also like mine and his relationship was kind of a surprise so we we met there's an event called the London Alternative Market which is like a big fetish market basically we met there actually all of the people I'm currently have a significant relationship with I've met there in some way shape or form we kind of met there exchanged a couple of words and I thought he was really cool and so I sent him a message and was like look it says so so we connected on FetLife which for anyone who doesn't know people call it like kinky Facebook but it isn't really it's a kind of a strange combination of set of chat rooms and face it's a, it's a weird thing it's a strange corner of the internet but it's useful and uh, so we connected there and I was like look on your profile it says you're looking for someone to do rope with who like practice tying I like being tied. I also like tying people if you'd be up for doing that. So we kind of went to go do that with very much like a high person I don't really know. Let's do rope and get to know each other a bit better and make friends. And then it was like, there is some really intense sexual chemistry here. This is not a thing I expected. Um, and then kind of just snowballed from there. So yeah, that was kind of an unplanned but pleasant surprise, I guess. Right, right, right. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of find that, for me anyway, so I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I do like relationship anarchy. Because... Right, right, I wasn't, yeah, I didn't mean to, yeah, I wasn't meaning to define oh, your, no. your uh, but, relationships. But I think, like, I, I don't have, like, a primary partner, I don't have, like, a, a sort of formal hierarchy for my relationships. Um, and also, like, I, I dis, like, fine for everyone who does it, but for me personally, like, all of my relationships are significant to me in some way. So I feel like defining something as primary or secondary, whether intentionally or not, gives it some, like, weight of importance, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and also it, it creates a difficulty because, like, so so with, with the partner that I've been with for three years, our relationship has shifted. So it used to be kind of my only... For, for a period of time, it was my only romantic relationship. And if I'd put a label of primary on that and then it shifted and it was no longer my only romantic relationship. And like, I, I spend, I used to spend like three to five nights a week with him. I now see him once a week. If that had shifted and the label primary had come off, then it, it creates a totally different emotional experience right. than just that relationship has Absolutely, changed. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's complex. I enjoy it. Right. But it, it has a lot of moving parts, I guess. Right. I mean, that, right. And uh, I mean, that's the thing. There's so many kind of 
ideas in culture about all of these things mm. it's like one of the things i always say when i'm talking about having an open relationship is like it doesn't mean you have particularly more sex than other people no not necessarily like, p- possibly even less sex yeah i mean there's, there's, there's a lot more planning involved right, in exactly. sex like that's sort of... exactly like people like they 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 latch on to either oh my god uh it's just cheating by another name yeah. you know how can you do it aren't you jealous and all of that stuff uh, or they latch on to like, you know, aren't you greedy? Like you yeah. hate, well, and, and, uh, in hate fairness, that, that phrase. Yeah, the, the aren't you greedy. I mean, I'm, so I'm pansexual <laughs> and as uh, someone who, who gets read as, as a woman, like like basically the whole like bisexual women being greedy thing is like, that's been a trope for a long time. Right. I've been out as bi since I was like 14. So like, I'm very used to that. And in some ways, like I absolutely despise it and think it's ridiculous. And then on the other hand, I'm like, no, I absolutely am greedy. Like, like why why would I not get as many good things well, in my life as I possibly can? But again, it's like my opening gambit of saying we're both oversharers. It's like, inter- like greedy has negative connotations. Yes, absolutely. Like, in fact, it's just, you're not afraid to like ask for and take yeah. when it's appropriate. What yeah, you want. yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the things that I think is interesting for people who are not within kind of non-monogamous discourse, yeah. what you previously said of, of like uh, unhealthy non-monogamy, yes. it's one of those things whereby everybody knows that there's unhealthy monogamous relationships. Yes. Everyone knows some of those. Yes. And so like, of course, when we're talking about unhealthy and healthy yeah. non-monogamy, we're not saying that it's worse, oh, no. uh, for more, more or less well, uh, prone to this stuff yeah. than monogamy is. And I think actually a lot of the things that I look at as unhealthy in relationship like if you look at a lot of pop culture around relationships like it's glorified Mm -hmm. like the kind of like emotional like if you look at any sitcom that has existed the kind of like genuinely like emotionally abusive manipulative stuff that goes on in those like that is a really unhealthy relationship Mm -hmm. and like the stuff that I value like like I'm I, I would basically say that I'm like obsessed with honesty and, and it's interesting in the in the relationship that I had that was monogamous and then we tried to open it up there was a point where I'm very blunt I'm very up to the point like basically if something's bothering me I'm like look this happened I don't like it because of this I would like us to do this and like it's it's just like this is what's going on and and, and like like sometimes not like if it's a very emotionally charged thing it's more challenging and way scarier to do that but still like I'll have a thing of being like I don't want to talk about this which means I need to talk about it kind of thing um but in that in that previous relationship um there was kind of he he had a habit of kind of talking around issues and I would get very frustrated because I'd be like what what are you actually trying to say here like like what's really going on um and there was a point where I was like okay look I just want you to be like brutally honest with me and he was like oh but I'll hurt your feelings I was like good do it like hurt them bring it on um and he kind of ranted at me for about six minutes and at the end I was like that is the most useful six minutes of conversation we've had in the last six months because I'm like okay I actually I actually have like an idea of what is going on for you and now we can address it whereas talking around it just for me, creates a load of frustration because I'm like, I really want to understand, but if I'm if I don't actually get the information I need, I can't I can't do anything. Like right. I can't do anything with information I don't have. I mean, right? I I absolutely like relate to a, a lot of that. I mean, I definitely would have said like ten years ago, I might have described myself in similar ways. Now I'm like, uh, I, I understand better that in order to be brutally honest like I thought I was being you have to be a honest with yourself before yeah. you can be honest with other people and I don't think I've always been honest with myself 
um, but B, you have to like understand enough yeah. to articulate. And so a lot of the time I felt like I'm articulating yeah. uh, honestly, but actually like if I was to play that back in like if I was recording it and played it back I'd be able to see that no I wasn't being clear and actually I had like 20 weeks of therapy on the NHS last year and that's really helped me to see as much as my brand was about honesty and openness I actually had to look at like whether I was actually living up to that brand in my actual behavior well and I think like for me like like there's the you can you can say what you think is going on for you but there's always deeper stuff yeah like i i i did um so i i went for i don't know how long a couple of like four or five months i I went into therapy because i have a lot of historical stuff to do with my dad that i was like okay i need to like it's time i need to deal with this it keeps coming up and it happened like over a decade ago like i I need i need to sort it right because ultimately i'm a problem solver and if i realize something's causing an issue i want to fix it like fast um, right. which is also not necessarily the healthiest well that's right? what your therapist will be able to tell you though right yeah that's exactly why you go to therapy exactly i also was told um, similar things yeah to that. and and so <laughs> so through that process i kind of learned a lot about myself and ended up opening up a huge can of worms and i learned a lot in terms of like like i have very specific rigid core ideals and because of that i'm i'm have a very clear idea of what i think is ethical and what i think isn't and it is like like I have I have to give other people more allowance for that. Right. Like it's not okay. Like and, and I think the biggest I mean, thing that, is that's a binary, right? Yeah. And, it totally uh, binary. We're trying to destroy um, those things these and, days. And and also it's one of those things of like like kind of becoming like kind of nudging myself to be more understanding and be like like everyone is gen I genuinely think pretty much everyone is doing the best that they possibly can wherever they're at with like their knowledge and level of of awareness right Right, right. and sometimes that is piss poor but that's where they're at right (laughs) like you can't you you can't right right (laughs) like being angry at them isn't going to fix that right um but the thing is i hold myself to like even like an even higher one and so um so so that that kind of holding yourself to a super super rigid binary i call it my inner drill sergeant um (laughs) where it's just like if you've stepped slightly over the line in the wrong direction like that is not okay it's unacceptable and you have to like make amends in some way shape or form um but you can't like you have to try and make amends but you'll never fix this kind of thing which is a really uncomfortable internal experience um but one of the things that's that's interesting in terms of the whole like non-monogamy and open sharing thing is because there's always deeper stuff I've now started kind of being like okay I'm having an emotional experience and I try and phrase it in specific ways with myself because I find it helps so I'm like okay let's do some detective work and like let, let's let's like kind of fish through this and actually find out what's going on so like I have particular things that I've noticed if I get irritated or annoyed it's very rarely actually irritation or, or annoyance it's usually that actually I am sad or upset mm-hmm. or feel betrayed yeah, or whatever the thing yeah, is yeah. but it's way easier to have a thing of being like i'm annoyed and they have somehow wronged me than be like let's look at the vulnerable uncomfortable parts of myself that need looking after and right. are easily hurt like and, that isn't fun and if you're a creative um, person or a storyteller as well like that's <clears> the that's the danger i always find i'm very good at creating a rational like the words yeah. coming out of my mouth are very believable yeah uh, and that could be a problem for my partner because yeah. they're very convincing yeah. and then i have to like go like everything i said half an hour ago like i yeah i don't i no longer agree with it yeah. i've thought about it it was complete nonsense and yeah then we I've have to also, unpick that together i've also gotten <laughs> quite careful of like if i realize something is up emotionally of actually taking the time to be like i need to step away from this 
and like like people will be like like partners or whatever especially in situations where there are more than one person around like mm-hmm. like another partner of mine right, like two partners right, of mine right, are right. around or one of theirs is it, it becomes more complex right and so especially in those situations if they kind of have like a are you okay um instead of just being like either no i'm not and here are all of the reasons which are usually i call it like like in a four-year-old where it's like this is all really unfair and you're really mean to me right um which which everyone has that reaction but it's not genuine so like like not kind of jumping to that or not being like oh yeah i'm absolutely fine which is lying to them like intentionally or not um but actually being like no i'm not but i don't know why yet i will talk to you about it when i've figured it out basically or in some situations like kind of basically being like no i'm not can we sit down and have it and like basically like like do the detective work together right and like like talk it over and and kind of pull all of that stuff out into the open which is a super vulnerable thing to do right um and and like it's one of those things of like I do it and it's really rewarding I hate it and I hate that it's necessary like I'll sit there and be really grumpy about the fact that I'm like like need help or need to ask for things or like like I I, for a very long time enormously prided myself on being very self-contained which does have its benefits and it can be very effective but it's very lonely and so I'm I'm practicing asking for things I mean that's well that's quite I mean you know, within society, that's quite a, a, a male or masculine coded behaviour mm. pattern, uh, or like sometimes it's, it's it's also, you know, it's also a racialized behaviour pattern as well, or a class based behaviour yeah. pattern of like, I've got to be the one, like yeah. I've got to be, it's it all myself. on me, it's all on me. I can't ask for help. Yeah. I've got to be the solver. I've got to be the problem solver. Like yeah. so, I can, you know, very well, it's much. Interesting because um, so my mum, my mum is a very intellectual, logical person. And I think the best way I would describe it is she spends a lot of time thinking about her feelings and very little time feeling them. Um, right. But but she comes from like a lower middle class family. Her dad was uh, uh, his family was working class and and all worked down the mines. Um, right. And he was he he had good grades, so he went to grammar school and then he got a scholarship to go to university and he went to art school. So like he had a really specific experience of being alienated from the working classes, but also completely not belonging with the middle classes. Right. So he 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 kind of valued intellectualism and also hated it and and like this this entire like there's there's a huge amount of family culture that has like been passed down in terms of like needing things from other people and like having feelings as a luxury and like right. you know very specific ideas about what's reasonable and and what you should be able to get on with yourself. Right. Also, my family are northern, so I think there's an element like a cultural element of just like oh like shut up and get on with it. No one actually like and and not in a cruel way, but no. I think it's just it's it's relatively ingrained. Yeah. Um I would say I mean I've that it's just kinda like you get off on and fix with stuff. Northern. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I can, I can see um, that. and you don't make a fuss about it, right? Right. Um and and so actually like it's been kind of interesting from like a like a cultural exchange and generational exchange perspective, like having conversations with my mum about certain emotional experiences and and like we recently had some conversations about mental health um and she was kind of both of my partners have mental health issues and she was kind of asking if I find it worrying when they talk about certain things and I was like like one of my partners at one point had a had a point of of like suicidal ideation she Mm -hmm. was like oh do you find it scary when he talks about that and I was like well not really because he's talking to me about it if stuff is going wrong and he's talking to me like yes that is concerning and obviously i would like for him to be in a place where he's doing better but that's because i want him to be happy and healthy um but like the point that i will get 
scared is when I can tell something is up and he's not talking to me about it. Right. Like, that's when I'll be like, okay, what the fuck is going yeah. on? Or I am having you committed. Right. Like It took me years to work out that, like, <clears throat> that, that, that I wasn't protecting my partner by not telling yeah. her I felt suicidal or I was depressed yeah. or whatever it was. Um, At that particular moment, it was just confusing her because she yeah. could see yeah, because that you something know was happening. Up. Especially if you know someone well. well like, And also then you turn it on yourself. Like, so she would think that I just didn't like her yeah. for periods of time. And like, that's, that was you know relatively recently she told me about that and it's like that's kind of really sad to like retrospectively realize yeah. that you've been like making your partner feel like they that you didn't like them yeah. you actively didn't like them for periods of time but it's a great thing to have yeah. discovered for both Definitely. of us because it kind of liberates both um, of us in loads of ways but then like me and her got into a whole conversation about mental health because of that and and she she was kind of talking about like oh yeah I mean like I've had like she was kind of going on this like oh she's had periods of time where you know like she found it difficult to get out of bed or like she didn't want to face the world you know like that's this normal right. like everyone has that like but she's never felt suicidal and I was like that's depression well, right. like that that's still and also I kind of made the point of like look at our family like she knows her mother was on Prozac for a period of time like right, her right, dad right. had significant anger issues right. like there are at least one of her siblings that have been on antidepressants for the majority of their adult life there is an ongoing thing of mental health issues in our family like this is not new and and actually like there is a word for that and just because you've never wanted to kill yourself doesn't mean you don't like right. have some element of that but also people get really confused about mm. what suicidal ideation is yes like absolutely. that's like for years i didn't realize i <clears throat> i was regularly relatively suicidal because of the fact that i wanted to not exist yeah rather than absolutely. wanting to die like well, i wanted I think, to like the gray yeah, it's just like you just want to like you just want to check out pause right? yeah. i want everything to stop exactly and, and I that's think, a kind of on the same continuum. I yeah. mean, I've stepped over that continuum into more like direct suicidal thoughts, although I've never acted on any. Mm. But but similarly, like self harm is on a continuum too. Yeah. Like I didn't see myself as a safe self harmer, whereas members of my family or my friends, I did. Yeah. Um, but then you know, after a number of years, I realised, oh no. Punching walls is self-harm. Yeah. It's just not the obvious one. It's not the headline ones. Well, and it's interesting because, like, I think the way, like, I don't know the best way of describing it, maybe, like, the mythology around certain mental illnesses, I think, can actually be really problematic. So, like, one of the things that I discovered, weird way of putting it. It is, but um, it is like that. Yeah, when I I was in therapy is, like... um, we ended up talking about body image and and eating and I kind of said like oh well you know like I've I've always had kind of like from from probably when I was about 12 or 13 like I've I've definitely had a weird relationship with food like I've definitely had a disordered relationship with food and I definitely in my teens had some like really severe like self-loathing connected to body image and and like but but like like I've never like I don't have an eating disorder and my therapist was kind of like okay well why why would you say it's disordered eating and not an eating disorder? We were specifically right, talking about anorexia, right, right, right. right? And I was like, oh, well, you know, like I can't have an eating disorder. And basically realised I was about to say the words because I was never that thin. Right. Um, and, and my therapist kind of, at this point, had learned she could be relatively forward with me and was like, yeah, like anorexia is a mental illness, not a body type. Right, absolutely. Um, and, and, <laughs> and then basically I was like, oh, fuck. So basically, you know, at 24, that point, I realized that for half of my life, I have had this underlying thing. And a lot of the discourse around anorexia is is talking about someone like making a conscious decision that they're not going to eat. Right. And also that it's a thing about willpower. Right. Right. And control. And in some ways it is. 
but also like a lot of that has started shifting slightly. So when I when I start, had this conversation with my therapist, I went and did a load of research and there was a really interesting and very, very useful article that I read basically talked about serotonin levels in people who have anorexia. And most people with anorexia have higher than average serotonin levels, which basically means they have really high anxiety. And when, when you don't eat, your serotonin levels drop. So that means for, for most people who have normal serotonin levels, they, they then feel sluggish and depressed and, and like crappy, right? Whereas for people who have, if, if your serotonin levels are too high and then you don't eat, they actually enter the normal area. Right. Um, it's interesting how like we sort of self-medicate in yeah. lots of ways in um, our behaviours. We don't know we're doing it. And, and, and yeah. so I was then like, oh, so that thing where, so, so the biggest thing that triggers eating stuff for me is really, really high stress levels. Like when I'm really stressed, I just get to a point, partly because of like, I, I just don't want to deal with thinking about food right. because it just feels like a whole extra thing. And like, I get like, there is a lot of stuff around control. Like I don't like the idea, like I ended up, a friend of mine recently got married and because I had like a flare up of eating stuff, I didn't go to her Hindu because I didn't know what food was going to be there. And I'm also gluten intolerant right. and lactose intolerant, which adds a level of complication. So it's like, will there be any food there that I can eat that I want to eat? And I have no control over it whatsoever. Like, it's kind of like you, you get what you're given. And I find that hugely, hugely stressful. Sometimes, sometimes it's fine, depending on where I'm at mental health wise. Um, but but the whole thing of of like just getting stressed about making decisions and making the right decision etc etc means that like even if I'm super hungry if I'm in that headspace I can walk into a shop look at everything that's there and just get so stressed about the decision I just walk out and don't bother I have exactly um and 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 so so it's kind of it's it's a strange balance of of wanting to make all of the decisions myself and for them to not Right. be beholden to anybody else um, but also yeah. I don't want to have to make decisions yeah. so it's a complex thing um, but also if I'm super super stressed I just don't f- feel like eating and I also don't experience hunger so like yes. normally yes. and that's one of the things that I didn't understand so See, all of this really resonates with me I haven't really necessarily put myself in the kind of eating disorder box but I can mm. see that at least I'm I would probably have said I was on that continuum vaguely yeah. but now you're saying this I'm like maybe I'm more than vaguely Well, and I like, definitely have that problem of like forgetting to eat or so like being overwhelmed when I am hungry mm. like I can't choose yeah like I, I literally and also like not being able to eat like when you're like super anxious yeah uh, like I, I literally can't make myself yeah, do it. exactly and so like I just feel no desire for it and right. I actually can find it quite uh like like uh like actually actually actively find that idea when I'm really stressed like like disgusting repu- like, yeah, like right. not quite disgusting right. but just like I have a huge version to it right um, like you'd be forcing yourself to do a horrible yeah, thing and exactly. when you do do it you're like why am I and I get yeah. really angry I'm like why do you, <laughs> why you know why why do, why does food even have to exist yeah. why can't we just like and I was saying like nonsense about like why can't we just inject yeah like food and then yeah. forget about it and like well, why does it have to dominate our lives yeah and I like food when yeah I, when I'm in, exactly when, I'm when you're in a different okay mood but like, but it was interesting because like, so so like, uh, I'm I'm the only child of a single parent, right? So like, me and my mom is my family dynamic, um, and I've never understood. Like, it always blew my mind, and, and this says a lot about my relationship with hunger. That basically, my mum would be like, "Oh, I'm kind of hungry, so like, I need to eat in the next twenty minutes," and that just totally confused right, me. Right, right. Because I was just like, for me, if I feel hungry, I'll be like, oh, "Okay, I'm hungry." I should like, I, I very rarely actually notice that I feel physically right, hungry right, right. Um, but if I do I'm like oh okay I'm hungry I should do something about that and we'll continue with what I'm doing and if I ignore it for like 20 to 30 minutes it just goes away um, and so it's like it's never like there was, there was definitely a point in my teens where I actively decided that I didn't want to eat 
but beyond that kind of period when I was about 14 or 15, I've never consciously decided I don't want to eat. I'll just have a thing where like, especially people like people I've been friends with or partners or people I've lived with will point out to me. I'll be like, oh, I'm feeling really tired. I wonder why. And they're like, what have you eaten today? Because they know me. And I'm like, oh, uh, well, I had a banana this morning. And they're like, it's 7 p.m. Emily, you need to eat. And like, it just won't really occur to me. Um, And actually, recently I, I... maybe like three or four weeks ago I had an enormously stressful week I had a new I had a very new experience with non-monogamy which was that I dropped into my partner's because I was feeling really crappy um and and just wanted some reassurance and he'd gone out for a drink with a friend and um basically I that it it had turned out to have possibility for them to be more than friends and so she'd come back with him and I and, and basically we were kind of in a situation where he's like oh okay like I've, I've been at the pub and like I brought this person back and I was like oh I feel really terrible and he was like what do we do it's like I have no idea I'm like right. I've never been in this situation before right. I don't know um and we ended up figuring it out uh, and and he asked her to head off and she was very gracious and very understanding and like me and him sat down and had a cup of tea and talked about stuff but it was very stressful at the time and then I had a couple of stressful days afterwards and so like my anxiety levels because of all of that were through the roof and I just had a thing where like this is the first time it was the first time I've actively tried to stop myself going down like a a, a eating disorder rabbit hole of being like because because uh, usually I just like let myself go into it and eventually I'd come back out and start like yeah, with a right, lot of right, mental right, health right. stuff right like you go into a low and you come back out or yeah. like whatever and so I kind of put a thing out on my Facebook being like anyone I know who who has an eating disorder or is in recovery or whatever particularly to do with anorexia like if any of you have any useful things or things you find useful for like helping you with this that'd be really great um because like I don't, I don't know. This is the first time I'm trying to like stop myself doing this. Um, and and also like, so so people that I've known for a long time, especially a child, particularly a childhood friend of mine, kind of reached out and sent me this super useful message. And they were just like, "Do you have any safe foods? So like things that feel okay to right, eat, regardless." Right, right, and I'm like, right, "Yeah, right. actually, like naked bars feel fine. Yes. Hula hoops for some reason, spaghetti bolognese is okay." And like, so there there are just specific things where I'm yeah. like, "This is fine to eat." And the other thing she said was like, "Make a plan for how you're going to get food bef- like." So before you're hungry, because she was saying like, she'll have a full on meltdown in the grocery store if, if she's hungry and hasn't made a plan. Right. Um, and, and like, yeah, talking to different people. And also I was kind of saying to her and to a couple of other people I was messaging, like, it never occurred to me. Like, I didn't realize that this was a problem until it was actively pointed out to me. And, and pretty much everybody I talked to was like, oh, same, like, I didn't realize I had like they, they've all said they didn't realize they had anorexia until it was a serious issue, right, right. either health wise or like it had changed the way that they relate to people so much. Like, like, like I really dislike eating around people when they aren't eating. I feel really uncomfortable about it. I would rather not eat. And so like both of my partners are awesome. And at various like, especially because they know things have been not as good recently. If I'm going over, they'll be like, have you eaten? If I'm like, oh, no, I haven't yet. They're like, OK, I'll wait. And like they'll sit and like we'll make food together and they'll eat with me because they know that helps and and stuff like that. So like that's been really awesome. But actually talking to other people and being like, oh, so actually this this kind of mythology around anorexia, there is a conscious decision not to eat, is pretty much from everyone I've talked to bullshit. Yeah. Like it's just a thing that happens. Then eventually you realize it's a problem. Um. But like, I mean, some people will experience <clears throat> it like that. But yeah. But then that's the thing. It's like with all of these things, like. Like with self harm, with like with mental health issues, like 
there are loads of people who just don't realise yeah. that it's happening to them because it's not happening to them the way they thought they yeah. were, it was supposed to. Or like autism's a good example of this. Like yeah. lo- lots of particularly women who have autism. Yeah. Uh, if it doesn't follow the it doesn't like, follow the cultural like, norm. Yeah. yeah. And so I, yeah. like especially uh, the other thing in terms of like eating disorders and self harm is I have never I, like again for a really long time I didn't think of myself as someone who had issues with self-harm and then I'm like actually at the points where I was having like some serious stuff around self-loathing and body image like not eating was absolutely a form of self-harm right um right. because like it's a way it, it's it was the basically from a psychological perspective a way of actively punishing well, myself I mean sometimes sometimes I think like even starting arguments is is, oh, yeah. is, is a form of self-harm so right you're like you're like all I need all I want is a hug yeah. so I'm not gonna have a hug I'm yeah. gonna upset the person yeah. who could give me a hug uh, like you know I, I will sabotage all of the things that could give me joy yeah. and then like that will help me to feel even worse and that's my objective on yeah. some level uh, yeah, and I think the thing that can be really dangerous with eating disorders is like it's a form of self harm that you get rewarded for, right? So because right, because our right, culture is obsessed right, with thinness, right. and because there is a specific body ideal that that apparently everyone should be aiming for, regardless of how healthy or unhealthy that is for them, like if like there there was a point where like I was I was not eating. Or, or severely um, like restricting what I ate in order to punish myself for not having the body that I ex- thought I should have. Right. Um, and at that point, I was losing weight, so people kept congratulating me. Right. Um, and they kind of have this thing of being like, "Oh, you look really well. You look really amazing, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. So it's like you're being horrible to yourself, and people are congratulating you for it. So especially for someone, anyone who's like a perfectionist or an overachiever or anything like that, or, or like values. Um, being seen as like competent etc it's a real like for me it was a hugely dangerous trap because it's like oh well if i do this more people will approve more um which is strange because right. i'm not i'm not particularly dependent on people's approval in some ways like if i do something and someone dislikes it that's fine but everyone loves praise right right um so it i feel like it's a it, i am very aware of the ways in which it can be quite dangerous for me um, but it's kind of interesting to be at a point where I can like notice those thoughts and I call it killing the ants. Well, like, like, so, so I, I grew up in North America, right? I grew up in Canada. Um, and like, if one ant comes into your home and gets the chance to go back to the colony, you'll end up with like an infestation. Um, so when the first ant comes in, you have to, you have to kill it. And it's the same for me with mental health stuff of like one shows up and you just have to be like, nope, squish that. That's crazy. Um, and like it kind of, cause it, once it starts, it can really snowball. Right. Um, or at least like recognize it and start to problem solve. That's a, um, that's a nice uh, metaphor for, for conceptualizing it. I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also like other things that have been helpful, like a lot of people I know recommended uh, a specific kind of like smoothie powder, basically. That's like the point is that it's complete nutrients. Right. The point is that it can replace a meal, right. which is super useful. Yeah, like, I've I got, got like, like Weetabix in but like bottles yeah, exactly. of Weetabix stuff. Yeah, whatever, and it, like, it just means that it's like crisis. I don't have to think about yeah. it. I don't have to think about it and I know it's good enough and it'll do the job and, and it's not unhealthy for me. Right. Um, and it's, so like it, it's it's sustenance without any of the thought or the stress right and as close to an been, injection as you can get yeah it's been super super <laughs> useful um, so yeah food, yeah food stuff is very no, strange I mean, no and then that, that's really that's really interesting and like I say that kind of slightly reframed ways that I think about myself which is yeah. never a bad thing I am publishing a book through Unbound 
Unbound are a publishing company, which means that they don't publish things that they don't think are good and that they edit. The thing that makes them different from other publishing companies is they're half publishing company and half crowdfunding company, which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books. They can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback, or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering. Unbound approached me in December to see if I wanted to adapt my show What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity into a book and I said yes please I definitely would like to do that and so that is what I'm doing if you go to the Unbound website and there'll be a link to this in the show notes you can find Mansplaining Masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book the way that this book is going to get made is by people like you pre-ordering it and pledging to it and people like you telling other people about it sharing it on social media recommending it to other people those kinds of things you can find out what the book is fully about by reading about it on the page there's a video of me in a purple dress and fedora with my childhood toy dolphin telling you about what the book is about But basically, Mansplaining Masculinity is about looking into myself and looking out at culture and thinking about how masculinity is constructed and created and how systematic elements contribute both to the ways that men are hurt by society, but also the ways that men hurt other people in society. It is not a book that says that men are the problem, but it is a book that will say that we can be part of the solution and if you want to get an idea of what it's like before you pledge to it you can listen to a podcast of the show that it's adapted from on the website mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk and also there was an episode of BBC Radio 4's Forethought called Liberating Men which was a reflection on an extension of the show so Listen to those shows, see if you like what you hear, and if you do, then please do support and pledge to make mansplaining masculinity happen. In terms of like non-monogamy, yes. so you're doing work around healthy non-monogamy. Yeah, so partly because my mum was an assertiveness trainer and then she worked in leadership development. And one of the things that she does with that is she teaches people soft skills, which is basically emotional intelligence, right? Like teaching yeah, people right. how to relate to one another in healthier ways. Um, and so there are a lot of models that I have learned from her that are actually really useful in terms of applying them to non-monogamy in terms of like communication styles and and ways of thinking. I'm based in Croydon and there's a thing called the Croydon Kink Collective and they're doing like monthly workshops Um, and I ran one for them which was basically like talking about tools for non-monogamy and I talked about a thing called the dreaded drama triangle which is basically about victim... like unhealthy relationship dynamics and like there's a victim a persecutor and and a rescuer and and like all of those roles have to exist for for conflict to continue basically and and for that dynamic to continue so talk about that and just making people aware of it and then there's also this really cool model called the experience cube um which is basically it it has four quadrants it's not actually a cube so it's a bit misleading um but it, it basically talks about like observations thoughts feelings and wants and that that's like 
that is the information that human beings need to make sense of a situation. Um, and if we don't have any of those pieces of information, we will fill in the blank because we're sense-making creatures. And it's not like we're, you know, maliciously making assumptions. We just do it without realizing it. But it can lead to a lot of conflict. Right. And and in in the book that it's from, it's uh, the, the the book is called Clear Leadership. They they call that uh, interpersonal mush. Um, and and so basically, it's like how do we sort through this so that actually everyone knows what's going on? Which especially in non-monogamy is very useful because often you have multiple people in relation to one another and so if there is a a two human relationship or configuration like there's tons of potential for that anyway and then the more people you add the more complex it can get right um and so it's it's like i would say that like the most important thing for for non-monogamy like people talk about honesty being really important and i'm like i actually think clarity is far more important right that that also resonates with my own life and mistakes and experiences as well (laughs) because like you can be as honest as you want but if you have no idea what is actually going on it's it's not going to help anyone you can tell somebody exactly the terms but if they hear other things as well like that and you don't notice that they've heard other things well and also everyone like like i think the biggest thing on that is like perception right because like everybody has a perception of the world and most of us think of it as like the way we see the world and the way the world is are the same and that is not true at all like like all of our experience is 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 colored by our past all of our experience is is colored by our interpretations of situations and our assumptions and our beliefs and so actually sitting there and going oh they did this so it must mean this like that that that's an assumption like right. you're making an interpretation you don't know that that's the case and if you act on that interpretation or assumption that can get really messy really fast and it's really hard to get back from that so yeah i'm i'm doing workshops about that stuff because also a lot of a lot of the information that you can find online and in books about non-monogamy will talk about like if there's something that difficult happened they'll be like oh sit with that feeling and process it but there's actually almost no information about how you process feelings or how you process stuff um and our culture doesn't really teach you anything about emotional health like it doesn't teach you how to you know, look after yourself emotionally the same way it does of like, oh, you know, if you have a cut on your knee, you'd, you'd clean it and you put a plaster over it. There isn't, there isn't that culturally for emotional stuff. So like we, we like part of the reason that I started doing workshops is like, we need to have those conversations so people can learn how to do that. Right. Um, because how the hell else do we start fixing that stuff? Right. Like, um, so that's kind of, that's kind of how that started. Yeah, no, that um, sounds really important work. I mean, and also one of the things I've been thinking, like, with this conversation is, like, if only I'd known more of this stuff about you previously, I would have, like, booked you when I was uh, doing, like, Smart Slam last year. You would have been a brilliant judge. In fact, uh, when Cameron brings, well, she's she's bringing it back occasionally to London, so I'll make sure that I totally. I remember seeing a thing about that because I also I I was also considering like sending a thing in to be like I am totally down for like I have a lot of dirty stories like like running around on the fetish scene for a long time and in non-monogamous circles like you you kind of collect them um and and like to me they're relatively normal but like there are a couple of things that I'm like I feel like an audience would appreciate this story and it's not necessarily a thing an experience everyone will have had um so yeah I was like that could be entertaining well I mean at the very least like Smart Slam is an open mic so you can just go along and tell your stories but you you should also be a judge (laughs) um 
And so, so as you've been saying, like you're also in the kind of the, the London fetish scene, yes. as it were. And often with people's passions or interests, I say like, when did this thing come into your life? But it's a weird thing to ask well, about fetish in a way. Well, it's it, sort of. But it's but it's not. I, I don't think, think it's a bad the question. The thing that's interesting is so it. so when generally when you encounter people on the fetish scene, there's there is a conversation of like, oh, how did you realise you were kinky, right? right? Um, and most people it's like, oh, you know, I was kind of interested in this for a long time and then suddenly I realised it's a thing you can actually do. And I actually had the opposite experience. I didn't realise I was kinky, I realised other people aren't. Um, <laughs> because by happenstance, like, like I, I became sexually active a bit before I turned 16. All of the people that I had early sexual experiences with were on some level slightly kinky, so like they were okay with like buying and, and hair pulling and scratching and stuff. And then... Um, when I went to uni, I had a I had a one night stand at the beginning of Freshers, um, and uh, the guy that I was fooling around with, I went to bite him, and he was like, "Whoa, what are you doing?" And I was like, "Yeah, apparently I'm I not mean, doing that." That's okay, an, that's a very important lesson. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> don't ever like, bite people. Okay. Who, who, don't assume people want biting. Yeah, um, and, and then I was like, okay. So apparently I'm not doing that. Yeah. It never, it like, pre, I was like, I was like 17 at this point. It had sure, never occurred yeah. to me. Like all the people I'd been like, like sexual with, with previously had been totally gung ho about that. And I was like, oh, okay, this person doesn't like this thing. Right. And then basically I'm pretty slutty. Like I, I'm very comfortable with my sexuality. And so like the, the period of time it takes me to go from just meeting a person to being like, I'm comfortable with this person and would like to engage with them sexually is, can be very short. I generally explain it as like, I'm, I'm, I'm nosy and have minimal impulse control. So so basically, like, I'll meet someone and my brain will be like, oh, I wonder what it would be like to fuck them. And then I'm just like, do it, do it, go find out. Right. Um, so, so <laughs> yeah, nosy and low impulse control. It's a fun combo. Um, but, like, through through the kind of first, like, term or so of uni, I was like, oh, okay, there seems to be a thing that actually there are quite a few people who don't like this, and that's cool. Kind of shifted to being like, do you like asking like are you okay with this are you not which is also a useful lesson really to learn of like let's gain verbal do. consent yeah. um and then like i think during my first year of uni i met someone that like again it was going to be a one i thought it was going to be a one night down to turn into a relationship um and basically i was like oh are you okay with biting and he was like yeah absolutely massive fan i was like cool if i bite you too hard just tell me to stop and he didn't at any point and he ended up with like huge purple bruises like all down yeah. his neck um, so like it's kind of always been there, um, but a little while after, I, I went to my first fetish event just before I turned twenty one, um, and basically I a, a girl that I dated who was definitely very kinky recommended that I check out FetLife because you can find events, you can kind of like observe and learn stuff without having to necessarily engage with it, which is very useful. Um, and so I decided that I wanted to go to a specific event um, because it, it was a femdom event. And at the point in time when I entered the fetish scene, I thought I was submissive because all of the fantasies that I'd had involved that in some way, shape or form. And then I very swiftly realized that that was not correct and that actually I'm far more dominant than submissive. Um, but I... But I mean, are you switched? Would you say you're a switch? Kind of. There aren't that many people that I feel comfortable bottoming or, or subbing with, largely because the best way I find to describe it is like, I'm not going to let anyone look after me if they're not going to do as good a job as I would. <laughs> and I'm quite competent. I like that um, sentence. <laughs> so there are very few people that I'm like, yes, this person is absolutely capable of, of, of like, you know, caring for me or, or looking after me or, or taking charge of me as well as I can. Um, so yes, I switch, 
but my reaction to most people is to be like dummy or toppy if that's cool with them obviously sure. um but but yeah so that was kind of a process and then um i kind of dropped in and out of it at various points uh largely because when i first discovered it i was like oh my god this is a thing um and also so so it was the first time that i met people that i genuinely really felt were my people like my peers right um and and so I got very excited and because I'm an all or nothing person, chucked myself into it for about three months and then totally burnt out. And so I took a three month break and then did that again a couple of times. And then um, about three years ago, I was like, I would like to get back into this in a more sustainable way. Right. Um, so I started doing that. And then I started running events because um, basically the kind of event I wanted to go to didn't exist. So, so as a, a femme presenting person and as a queer person I, I read a lot more queer now than I used to partly because of like the piercings and the hair and the tattoos right. like queer coding is alive and well um but previously I would be read as straight in most situations right. um and an interesting thing happens when you're kind of a, a, a soft femme in in straight spaces everyone reads you as straight and in queer spaces you have to like justify your queerness so basically kind of not in any kind of cruel way but people assume maybe that you're not queer so it's kind of like you have to like prove your queerness whether you're in straight spaces or, or queer spaces and there's for me there was this underlying sense of like am i really queer enough because a lot of the people i engaged with sexually and felt comfortable engaging with sexually were cis men and so i was like oh but am i really am i really that into people who aren't cis men like am i really that queer in a genuine sense do i really deserve to be in these spaces and so basically i want to to make a space where the question of am I queer enough to be here didn't exist. The event I run is called Femphasis, like emphasis with an F. Um, and in the information, it has a description of queer and it's like, it can mean a lot of things, right? It, it can be can. an internal yeah. identity. It can be a political identity. Yeah. It can cover anything on the LGBTQIAAP um, scale, right? Like like that that is a big umbrella. Yeah. Um, and femme is, can also be a huge umbrella um like like it can mean feminine it can be an internal identity it can have nothing to do with presentation whatsoever it can just be right. a state that isn't like neutral right or mask right. right and like fem and mask kind of in some ways vaguely correlate with feminine and masculine but they're not and right. so it's a very sure. difficult Absolutely. thing to explain and also like a lot of queer spaces i have found while they are queer they can still be very masculine dominated and there can be a lot of femphobia in queer space and when i talk about femphobia it's stuff like of of like one of my friends had a great example of this of her like taking someone asking if someone had chapstick or like 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 lip stuff and her being like oh yeah and they're like oh yeah of course the femme has the lip stuff and it's like right. this is bull like really are we doing this like right. is this necessary so i just wanted a space where that didn't have to happen and also a lot of femmes have a very specific like coat of armor they put on because in straight spaces they generally experience a lot of harassment from men and even if it is an act of harassment a lot of attention that they don't necessarily want from men and masculine people in general and, and in queer spaces they kind of need to justify their queerness because they present femme also for anyone who's who's assigned male at birth and presents femme that can be literally enormously dangerous for them yes. in a in a day-to-day -day way Indeed. like 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 trans feminine people are targeted and murdered in a way that they are the most likely to be especially trans feminine people of color are the most likely to be victims of, of queer hate crimes and so it's like that can be super super dangerous yeah. and there isn't a space for people who are assigned male at birth 
to really explore that. And so actually creating this space where it's like, however you, like everyone self identifies, right? It's like, if you identify as queer, great, you're welcome here. If you identify as femme, you're welcome. And also um, they can bring anyone they want of any gender or any presentation. So it's a very inclusive space because a lot of queer spaces have a no cis men rule, which I understand, but personally dislike as someone who has partners who are cis men, I would like to be able to bring them to things with me. Well, also Um, it's a continuum as well. It's, It's interesting, like what you say, because... As somebody who has long hair, in some ways, kind mm. of uh, it, it challenges kind of uh, gender ideals, yeah. ideas. I mean, certainly at school, uh, I was uh, mistreated because I didn't conform to ideas Absolutely. of, of uh, masculinity or uh, straightness. Yeah, I I don't feel at this point in my life I can define myself as femme or yeah. queer. Uh, or like gender queer as well, like is is a p- potential thing that I I sometimes think I kind of fit some of those things, I but I I also don't want to be appropriative. I don't want to take yeah. somebody else's, and so like if it's baby steps, like who knows what what I'll identify as in yeah. ten years time, and if nobody ever lets me yeah, come along that. and 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 sort of like start on the the whatever the slopes are for skiing that are like the first <laughs> ones, yeah. uh, like you know I, then I, I will never be able to find out more about yeah. about who I. I might be yeah and I'm not saying that that means that that should be the priority like people like me get all sorts of advantages and so mm. why, why should we get another one but yeah. at the same time you know you, you're erasing people's existence and also like there's lots of trans people who don't know they're trans exactly. or like bi people who don't know they're bi yeah. or like all, all sorts of things or like yeah. pan people who don't know they're pan well whatever. and even like one of my partners like when we met he identified as straight um, and basically through the process of coming into queer spaces with me and realizing that he felt enormously comfortable there, in fact, way more comfortable than he's ever felt anywhere else, he's basically, and also through being in those spaces, meeting queer people, he basically is now like, like we've had some conversations where he's like, I think if I, he grew up in a very small village in the West Country, and he's like, if I didn't grow up around the people I grew up with, like if I grew right. up around the people that I now spend time with, right. maybe, maybe I would identify as pansexual. Right. And I was kind of like, Okay, so you're basically saying if you didn't grow up around bigots, yeah. you would freely identify as a different sexuality. That's fine. And maybe you just are that. Like, you don't have to do anything with that information. Right. Right. So he's now kind of like considering that actually he is somewhere on the queer spectrum. Right. And that's the thing that feels really comfortable with. And he's now like, you know, he's in his 30s. He's unlearning a lot of internalized homophobia right. by being in these spaces. Right. Um, and if... If, if you don't allow cis men into queer spaces, how do they identify their queerness? Right. Like, if, if they have no opportunity to engage with those spaces and figure out that actually the reason they usually feel at odds in, in straight spaces isn't because, you know, they're just, like, geeky or, 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 or introverted or weird, which, you know, he is as well, but, <laughs> but like, that there is actually something else going on there. Right. I mean, I often think now about my own like childhood in that respect like I knew some gay people but I didn't really know queer people if you see what I mean even though obviously gay people are part of the umbrella they were particularly un-queer gay people who I knew who were kind of comfortable being out or semi-out at school Um, and they were also people who bullied me in in certain kinds of ways the same as the straights did well and and it's this is when you get into interesting conversations about like power structures within marginalized groups right because especially cisgendered white gay men if you look at power structures bar the fact that they're gay they're top of the pile and quite often like 
there are a lot of of and and it's it's similar in in some ways with with cisgendered lesbians especially right, white, like right, cisgender right, white lesbians where basically like quite often like i've experienced personally a lot of biphobia from cisgender white lesbians yes. i have experienced like like not personally aimed at me but have definitely witnessed a lot of transphobia from people in those groups and Indeed. so it becomes a, a, a difficult thing where it's like this is why representation of, of queerness so so not just like the the like you know the like horrible in my opinion horrible adverts that, that came out in america when they were talking about like marriage equality of just like we're just like you right, i hate right, that shit right, right, right. because i'm like actually i shouldn't have to be just like straight people to be valid same with like it's part of the reason that that pride as it currently exists in london really bothers me because it's like oh look at all the queers coming out and being really cute and it's like, I shouldn't have to be cute to be accepted by society. Right, I mean, like, I, I shouldn't have to be palatable or, or familiar for you to, like, recognise my humanity right. and legitimacy as a human being. I mean, and they're also marching with the police. And yeah, the, exactly. And the military as well. Those complexities are, yeah, things that, as a, like a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, apparently cis yeah. boy in a, in a, you know, comprehensive school. Yeah. Like, none of these details are available to you and also yeah like now you know at 36 I know lots and lots of people who are like trans or queer or non-binary and like I never have any trouble talking to those people yeah and, and, and that's really you know interesting to me because growing up I'm not saying I didn't have friends and I didn't have you know genuinely decent people who yeah. kind of semi-saved my life who mm. were there for me who we're also, you know, a bit homophobic and all of mm. these other things as well. I'm not saying it's simple and binary oh, no, in that respect either. But I do think, not that I regret the friends I had, but I just wish I'd had mm. access to a wider kind of... Absolutely. W- I wish the, in some ways, what I'm really saying is I wish the internet had been properly yeah. in existence when I was well, in school. Well, it's, it's, it's one of those things, <laughs> it's so weird because like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 25 and I'm looking at people 10 years younger than me who are so confident in their queerness. And it makes me so happy because I'm like, you have all of this information available to you because of the internet you're totally on it you tot like and there are people where i'm like you're like 14 and you're like a right, super clued right, up right. like intersectional feminist non-binary yeah. human and that is so fucking cool because like the internet was around when i was that age just that discourse and that discussion wasn't happening in the same right, way right. i mean the internet came in when i was uh like 15 or something it was there mm. but it was really early on yeah exactly and, and also like it's like as well as I, I wish that I'd had the internet for that when I was at school I'm also quite glad that I didn't have the internet because I think when I went home I didn't take the bullies with me yeah. in the same way that social media would I, I think like I was othered everywhere I went yeah. in school I wouldn't want Adding to have that to in it. my pocket as well Jesus. well and I think that's an interesting thing because so uh, I came across this really interesting post and it, it was specifically talking about kids being made fun of for like being ugly. Um, but it was talking about basically like bullying. Like if you look at, at our society, like cruelty is the way that our society enforces power structures and bullying is essentially that on a smaller scale. And now I like, and when I read that, it kind of blew my mind. Cause I was like, actually all of the people I know who were like ruthlessly bullied as kids, most of them are queer. Most of them are. Like, the vast majority of them are queer, or even if they're not queer, they in some way rejected the norms right. that existed. It's nearly always about yeah. gender on some level. Exactly, like gender or sexuality, sexuality or yeah. race. or And yeah, it's one exactly. of those things of, like, these. this is the way that kids learn to enforce these power structures in some way, shape, or form. And so it's it's actually a really interesting thing to... When I meet people who don't necessarily idea as queer, but talk about 
being made fun of in specific ways i'm kind of like i i kind of like kind of add a add a like mental note of being like they may fall into like a lot of people i know call it like baby queer yeah. where it's like they haven't realized that that's where they are yet i'm not saying they are but like no. this, that, that might be a possibility but that's part of the problem is where you don't want to give those people that like you don't want uh people who are bullying you to define who you are as well yeah. so that's part of the problem is you're being like a lot i mean a lot of the bullying i experienced at school like i talk about this in my show about masculinity like it was all kind of coded as like non-normative right so yeah. it was all like homophobic stuff yeah. even though I wasn't gay or you know didn't didn't have a more fluid idea of my sexuality then um like it was all or I was like called a woman right yeah or I was called like and, and, and I guess you know transphobia didn't exist in the same kind of way on a school level yeah uh, then but nowadays I, I probably would be called slightly different things yeah. as well at school because I had long hair uh, even back then and so like and even when it wasn't like uh, along those lines, it was things like you know tramp or like yeah. SWAT or like pedophile, like pedophile, yeah. or anything that's an othered idea. Um, and I think that that's so. I did, I you know, I think for lots of years, I wouldn't have wanted to give those people the the opportunity to be right. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't want to say no. No, actually, no. I am. You know, I am maybe something yeah. like that. Like I, I, I don't want them to define me. I want to define yeah. myself. And ironically, I think a lot of people, and I don't, I don't necessarily think I am necessarily those things. I'm still finding out. But I think a lot of people will be mm. like fighting against their selves yeah. because they don't want the bullies to be right well then it's interesting because like if i look back at the people that i really heavily like had really positive genuine connections with as a kid we were like they were always the weird kids and like the creative kids and the, 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 right. the like theater kids or whatever um but also now as adults almost all of them like quite literally the the vast majority of people that i had incredibly strong friends with friendships with even at like five six seven years old are queer <laughs> like a friend of mine wow. in in vancouver like we were friends for like two years and literally like me and her were friends and all of the other kids had like groups of friends with and like with me and her it was just me and her right she's like a, she's now like a super punky like kinky queer right. gothy like tattooed like we have a lot of similarities aesthetically right. like but but like some part of us clearly latched onto each other for a reason right, right. um and like, yeah, same with, with a lot of the people that I grew up with that I actually really massively got along with. I'm I'm now finding out as adults are queer or are kinky. Right. Or and, and so it's like that that stuff like it it's kinda there. Some like I I feel like queers recognise queers quite often. And sometimes like it's kind of strange because I'll meet people and read them as queer and then they'll talk about being straight and cis and I'm just like, okay. And there's a part of me that's like, I'm not saying that's wrong. I may have been mistaken, but also like, I'm just going to keep an eye on that. And if they right. need to talk about stuff, I'm around. And right? that's the cool. But that's I'm <clears> glad <throat> that it's only a, like there's a part of you doing that rather than you're one of the people who says no, you're this. Oh, you know, because that that is also a problem. Yeah. Itself. Well, and also you like, like let get... people define themselves. Exactly. Like let people self-identify however they want to. Right. And and actually, like for people listening who are like also like excited by the fact that younger generations are so kind of clued up on these things also keep in mind that those like younger generations can only thrive with this knowledge if you believe them yeah. and support them because i think it's like almost it's like a very scary thing to really know who you are and to still be rejected by your oh, parents yeah. or your schools or society in general so it's up it's up to all of those of us who are inspired by these younger generations yeah. to make sure the world is safe for them and it's also a thing of like i, I i've seen it pop up a couple of times but like 
especially when I was younger, there were queer people that I saw totally like owning that in whatever sense. And like, it, it, it is the same. Like I say that, like it doesn't happen now. Like I see queer couples going around and doing their thing. And I, I genuinely, it makes me so happy because it's just, it's, it's, it's affirming to see other queer people like rocking their queerness. Um, and, and I think it's one of those things, especially as someone who, even though I didn't know I had queer friends at the time, felt very isolated and very confused in certain ways and um, like kind of felt like I had to figure all of this stuff out. Um, watching people just do their thing and be happy, <laughs> as weird as that sounds, um, is super affirming and, and like makes me feel more comfortable as a queer person as well. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's it. Like, if, if you let people be themselves, it lets all of us be yeah. ourselves. In whatever like, sense. Whatever like, sense, yeah, exactly. Like, like like kind of people being like authentic and genuine and being celebrated for it or even just accepted. Like you don't have to be like, woo, well done you. You right. just be like, cool, that's you and do that. Right. Um, is, is such an affirming thing. I think regardless of, of like gender or orientation or whatever, but, yeah. but is significant if, if you're outside of the norm, however. Right. Um, but yeah. So like the last thing on my list, I think that we haven't covered, uh, although we have all of the things on the list, like we've covered them and we haven't covered them, but like we're kind of covering this one now is like gender identity. Yeah. And like, so, so how, where, where are you at with so that? So basically I had a, I had an interesting experience last year. I went on holiday with my partner and his family and he has a four year old niece who is a really, really cool kid. And there was a point where we were like sitting and she has like, she has like a frozen Play-Doh set. So we were sitting there making like different colored Olafs or whatever. She turned around, she just went, Emily, are you a girl or a boy? And my brain just went, ah! Right. <laughs> what? Um, and and her mum was very apologetic and kind of like, oh, sorry, she's she's met a lot of trans people recently. So we've been explaining that, <laughs> that like how someone looks and how someone feels isn't necessarily the same. And I'm like, well, that's really awesome. Like the fact that this four-year-old kid is yeah, like checking, super great. cool. But, but also I, I kind of explained to her mum and was like, look, I, I run in queer circles. Asking someone their pronouns is a normal question. However, asking someone what pronouns they use and asking someone if they're a boy or a girl... It's a completely yeah, different question. Asking someone if they're a boy or a girl is way more confronting. Yeah. Especially because previously I assumed I was cis because pronouns don't matter to me. So basically I was like, sure, she, her is good, they, them is good, like he, him would be unusual, but whatever. And basically like through this I was like, I think I'm a girl most days maybe, and then started like actually thinking about it um, in a way that I hadn't previously and, and kind of put a thing out. Facebook is very useful for me um, being like, I have questions, but, but I kind of put yeah. a thing out because so, so much of the discourse around transness is framed around dysphoria, like gender dysphoria. So, right. so being uncomfortable with parts of yourself and like, I, I am I am relatively petite and quite muscular and very curvy, right? Like I've got big hips and I've got big boobs and, and I'm like an hourglass shape. So a lot of people would think of me as having like a pretty womanly figure. Um, that is not a thing I've ever been uncomfortable with. There were from... there were inverted commas around that womanly. Yes, there were. Um, but but <laughs> but like that has never specifically bothered me from a gender perspective. So I kind of was like, oh, well, maybe it isn't really a thing because I don't have any issues with these, with, like, like I have no issues with my genitals. I have no issues with having breasts. Like, that's not an uncomfortable thing for me. And so I kind of put a thing out and I was like, any any non-binary people I know who don't experience dysphoria, yeah, it would be good right. to ch- chat to you. Right. Um, and so I talked to a couple of people. And at the time I was dating this super cool non-binary person and had a chat back and forth with them and basically I was talking about pronouns and I was like also like I don't 
Like, they, they literally don't matter to me. It's like, okay, yeah, sure, well, use whatever you want. That's fine. None of them, none of them feel incorrect. And they were like, that sounds pretty outside of the binary to me. And I was like, the, the, only, the only pronouns that have ever actively appealed to me are Zizir, because it just sounds like you're completely separate from that whole gender thing, and that's kind of cool. Right. Um, and they were also like, that is some pretty classic non-binary stuff. Like, not to say what your identity is or what your gender is, but like, also, if you're specifically heavily questioning if you have a trans identity, you probably do. Yeah, um, I mean that is also what I have. That is also what I would say from yeah. from 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 all of the people I've I've heard from. I've, obviously, I'm not uh, trans myself or non-binary myself at this point, but uh, but definitely that is a, if if you're thinking about it, yeah. if you're questioning it, it's it's kind of a, a sign. Yeah. is what I've um, generally heard. Well, and also having more conversations about that were useful. So like. I have always enjoyed having certain like visual juxtapositions. Right. So like in a lot of ways I dress very feminine. Like I pretty much always wear dresses. I I very rarely wear trousers. I don't particularly like them. Right. Um, I pretty much always wear dresses, but like I wear like pretty heavy boots. The sides of my head are shaved. Like there are certain things. Also, I feel way more comfortable with myself when I'm strong and when I'm muscular like having juxtapositions of like masculine and feminine elements as most people think of them makes me feel more comfortable like Mm. being particularly like girly in a traditional way feels weird to me and also like there so I I went to theatre school and at the end of theatre school I had like long brown hair and I looked really normal um and like I I didn't realize it until I started questioning this but like people will look at pictures of me like that and I'm like yes when I was pretending to be a real girl kind of thing and like it gen- like it doesn't feel like it's me yeah. um, and it was definitely a performance it was definitely like it, it doesn't feel connected to who I am yeah um, I, I and, have, I've and, had phases of, with my masculinity where I'm like yeah, that feel it, like and, that and it's like it, it was absolutely performative yeah. right um, and so actually being at a point where I'm like, okay, so I prefer when things are in juxtaposition. Um, and also, like, like I'd been thinking about it for a while. A friend of mine added me to a, a Facebook, a small Facebook group that they run, uh, which is about what they call gender wobbles. So basically just like like questioning or not quite sure and a place for people who, who identify outside of binary to talk about certain things that affect them because it is different in some ways. Um, like there's overlap, but there are a lot of things that are different from binary trans identities as well. Um, yes, absolutely. And then I had a moment, um, funnily enough, I was fooling around with a friend of mine. Um, uh, my, my, my circle of friends and my circle of sexual partners is very, if you made a Venn diagram, it'd be very close to a circle. Like it's, it's just like pl- platonic. I think that's quite healthy. Yeah, but, but like platonic in the sense of non-involving <laughs> sex isn't yeah. kind of normal for me. Like it, it can kind of be part of my friendship or not. It's not right. what they're about. Right, right. But it's just like, it can be, whatever, no big deal. Yeah. Um, and uh, I had bought a strapless strap-on. So basically, for anyone who doesn't know, it's it's a dildo, but it has like a, an internal kind of egg-shaped part that you can put inside you if you have a vagina. And and so it's cool because, like, unlike standard strap-ons, like if I'm orgasming, it because of muscles tensing, it changes the angle, so the person I'm fucking can feel it. If they come, I can feel it. It's pretty cool. Like that's awesome. Um, and basically like me and this friend were fooling around I was like yay I can try this thing this is exciting Um, and tried it and I was like oh wow I feel very boy Um, (laughs) this is interesting and it was like it was really affirming but also it was a very odd experience because I was like this is this is the first time that I've had a moment of being like no 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 this feels like I'm in boy mode Um, and kind of actually being like yeah this is this is a significant thing 
Um, so at the moment, my, my gender identity kind of fluctuates. And I think especially being a, a feminine presenting or femme presenting non-binary person who was a, like like assigned female at birth, most people read me as a woman and that's fine. I'm not uncomfortable with that. But also it's like, it doesn't feel like it's the whole story. Right. So because of that, it's kind of a strange place to um, inhabit because I'm not super like, like, yeah, my gender identity is fluctuating or, or like, I'm kind of, basically I'm in a place where I'm like, I am kind of like in between non-binary and woman. Like both of those kind of seem fine. Like yeah. I'm, especially because I'm on the femme side of things, like, like presenting more masculine doesn't have any appeal to me really um, because that's just not me. Um, but because of that, it's kind of an odd spot because it's like, I'm non-binary. That would be how, like, like if they gave me a formed tick in that had, you know, they, them pronouns or, or an other box for gender, I'd be like, great, that, that works for me. But also it doesn't actually matter to me that much, um, which is kind of interesting because I know a lot of non-binary people who are very, very identified with, with their non-binaryness. Yeah. And it's so really I, important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I completely understand why. Um, and like, like that, obviously, like there's a lot of issues, again, the whole power structures within scenes thing. Like there are a lot of people who are really shitty towards non-binary people in so many ways. Um, and like, that is not cool. So I totally understand why either for personal reasons or for political reasons, their non-binaryness is like an incredibly important aspect of themselves. But ultimately I'm like, yeah, it's kind of just how I am. I don't really care. And like, it's not like, it's not particularly like relevant to anyone else. Although it did lead to some interesting conversations about queerness with partners of mine. Um, so the partner who identified as straight when we started seeing each other. When I was talking about this stuff, they, they, like, they're really awesome and clued up. And they were like, oh, if you want me to use like gender neutral pronouns for you, just let me know. And I was like, I, d- I don't really give a fuck. Like, change if you want to, don't. It literally makes no difference to me. And then we were talking about them identifying as straight. And I was like, I get that. But also, you've basically been in a relationship with someone who now doesn't identify as a woman for like two years. So like, right. but but by, by like, a, if if you're talking about which box you tick, you're not straight. Like, <laughs> ac- according to how these stupid well, categories work. Tell him, like, I define as straightish. Yeah. So he does perfectly. Like, like and that's an easy first yeah. step towards. Well, and I'm like, again, seeing yourself it's, it's, as a less kind of binary. Yeah, it's not significant to me that he identifies other than straight. But I'm like, basically, if you've been in a relationship with someone who is non-binary for for two years, this is not a straight relationship. Right. Right. Um, and so like, cool if you want ideas straight awesome but like put like just just a thing for you to think about you're not that straight right. um which actually is interesting because because i've had some conversations similar with my other partner and i think there's a weird permission that comes with being like actually you're already not straight right like right, right, right. like just a thing where it's like it's no big deal already done, you can ID already how you, yeah exactly the, like yeah. like uh, the other partner of mine who i've been with for a year we got into a conversation about so he wants to explore more sexually with men uh but is very nervous about it and so we were talking about that and and because my life is the way it is i basically was like hey sweetie do, do you want to have sex with cute bi guys together because like we can do that <laughs> like i'll i'll be i'll be a good partner i'll be right. helpful um and and create a situation that's more comfortable right um, and then we had a conversation about if you date people of different genders or, or have had sexual experience with people of different genders how do you define sex because basically we were talking about the number of people we'd had sex with. And right. I was like, well, if you only talk about penetrative, like penis in vagina sex, my number is significantly lower. But also I've had sex with a lot of people who don't have penises right. and I don't have a penis. So 
Whereas, I need a wider definition, yeah. in which case if I count oral sex with people who have these then genitals... Then your virginity goes back then, way further well, as well, because like, okay. a bullshit exactly. idea in the, in the first place. But if you do it by sex, which is not just penis and vagina sex, yeah. most of us lost exactly. our virginity ages before and then, we, and then, we officially uh, did. BDSM is a complicating factor, right. because I have engaged kink-wise with people who can orgasm from pain. Right. So I'm like, okay, so does that count as sex? Yes. I mean, but I've also, yeah, t- same. But then I'm like, okay, so what I've done, I've done things that most people would count as sexual contact that haven't resulted in orgasm. But this thing that most people would think like impact plays is basically hitting people with stuff, um, consensually, obviously. Yeah. Um, but like, if they've orgasmed from that, does that make that sex? Um, and so, so it becomes a wider ranging thing. And so my partner was like, oh, okay, well, if I define it, if I define sex with people who have penises in the same way that I define the umbrella of sex with people who have vaginas, then I've already had sex with some men right and he became right. instantly right. way right. more comfortable yeah, yeah, right. with the idea of engaging sexually with men so right. it's kind of interesting how like definitions in that kind of way can like basically being like you're already queer like you've already been there yeah, like no, that's cool. kind of shifts things significantly yeah that's use- i mean yeah that's an interesting observation it's been amazing uh getting better acquainted with you today <laughs> i feel like we could we could literally go yeah, on forever but we probably should wrap it up Definitely. um the last question that i ask everybody is do you have anything to plug yes so um basically on facebook you can find my facebook page on my instagram etc under emily emphasis um, I, like I said, I do workshops about non-monogamy and I'm going to start doing some workshops around consent as well, because it's a simple concept, but more complex in practice. Um, and, uh, I run Femphasis, emphasis with an F, which is for any queer femme identifying people and whoever they want to bring with. The next one of those is going to be towards the end of June, which will also be my birthday event. So come around and say hi. Um, it's a vetted event, so you need to like drop us an email. And then also my band. So my band is called The Fascinators. Um, not the weird 1950s doo-wop band. We're like a draggy metal band. So if you do Google Fascinators UK, you will probably find us. Or The Fascinators Blam, because that's what our first EP was called. We're currently working on our second EP. Um, and I'll stick links to all of those in the show notes as well. So uh, the last uh, thing I ask my guests to do is to mm. say goodbye to the audience. Well, goodbye, audience. And thank you for listening to my to my ramblings. And I hope you enjoyed them. <laughs> Bye, everyone. If you're interested in hearing about masculinity and what patriarchy does to men and to all people, if you go to the Unbound website, and there'll be a link to this in the show notes, you can find Mansplaining Masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book. Unbound is a kind of cross between a publishing company and a crowdfunding company, which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books they can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering you can find all of that stuff over on mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk if you're interested in reading about me and my dad and our relationship and dementia and memory and time and history and politics and love and friendship check out my essay series down to a sunless sea memories of my dad as well as making getting better acquainted i also co-produce and i guess star in the magical realist audio drama podcast the family tree in order to keep making it and to make season two as good as we want it to be 
we need your help. So if you can afford to, then please do consider signing up to our Patreon appeal. You can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can like Getting Better Acquainted on Facebook. And you can find Getting Better Acquainted on iTunes, SoundCloud, those kind of places. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.